With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Michael Moynihan, in for Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. As we tumble towards 2024, anxiety among Democrats is beginning to simmer. It's easy to understand why. My staff members said, remember the famous song, you know, good morning, Vietnam. Well, good evening, Vietnam. Last week, Biden found himself on stage in Vietnam, giving a press conference about upgrading the country's diplomatic ties when he started rambling. There's famous lines from movies that he always quotes, you know, and one of them is there is... These are the words that came out of the president's mouth. The Indian looks at John Wayne and points to the Union so says, he's a lion, dog-faced pony soldier. The Indian looks at John Wayne and points to the Union soldier and says... He's a lying, dog-faced pony soldier. Well, there's a lot of lying, dog-faced pony soldiers out there about, about global warming. Well, there's a lot of lying, dog-faced pony soldiers out there about global warming. But not anymore. He continued. I'm just following my orders here. Then he said he was going to bed. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. Before he left the podium, he mumbled something about the third world. He talked about making sure that the third world, you know, excuse me, the third world but quickly corrected himself because we don't say third world anymore. Southern Hemisphere had access to change. It's the Southern Hemisphere. Thank you, everybody. This ends the count. A voice suddenly emerged. Thank you. Jazz music started to play. Biden tried to answer another question, but they cut off his mic. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the president of the United States and the man the Democratic establishment believes is best suited to again win the highest office in the land. A man who, if elected for a second term, would be 86 by the end of it. According to a recent CNN poll, 56% of Democrats are seriously concerned for Biden's current level of physical and mental competence. 62% of Democrats say they're seriously concerned about Biden's ability to serve a full second term. Another poll, this one from the Associated Press, found that 69% of Democrats surveyed think Biden is too old for a second term. Among the people not convinced that Biden needs to be in a nursing home is my guest today, Atlantic staff writer Frank Four, whose new book, The Last Politician, tells the behind-the-scenes story of Biden's first two years in office. Four says he started as a Biden skeptic. The incoming president was, in his estimation, a bloviator who dangerously fetishized bipartisanship. But he emerges some 400 pages later with a rather more charitable view of the president. Biden is the father figure of the West— someone deeply experienced in foreign policy and racking up policy victories at home. Biden, he writes, is an instructive example of the tedious nobility of the political vocation, unheroic but honorably human. He will be remembered as the old hack who could. So why doesn't the public see it that way? What of Hunter Biden's legal troubles? The impeachment inquiry? What should we make of the many Democratic hopefuls eagerly waiting in the wings? And what would it take for one of them to step forward? And is America's political gentocracy a challenge for American democracy? Those questions and more after the break. We'll be right back.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I picked up the book. Very hard, by the way, to know how long a book is when you get it in Kindle. Yes. An exhaustive book. A very detailed book on a number of important issues. But at the top of the book, you say that you went into this having an opinion of Joe Biden. You didn't really elucidate what that opinion was, but you say it changed during the reporting for the book and, you know, came out with a more positive idea of who Joe Biden was as a person and a politician. Explain that a little bit. Well, I've always, I always thought he was a bit of a hack. Mm -hmm. He was the quintessence for me of the politician, that he had all of this artificiality. It's like the stories are the same stories over and over again. There was this sense that he would say anything to a crowd and then do something different behind closed doors. And um, one of the first times I encountered him, I was 24 years old, and I was somehow able to get him on the telephone, which I guess at that stage in his career wasn't that hard for any reporter. And Five minutes into the conversation, I'm thinking, get this guy off the phone. His stories are just never going to end. And it was the same thing that everybody else sees about him, that it's like he's talking about Mike Senator Mike Mansfield in the 1970s. And it was just very, very painful. But over time, observing him up close, I think some of his hackish tendencies were things that um, mutated into things that I saw as strengths and these things that I see disappearing from the rest of our political system, that there are not very many figures who are kind of these cornball politicians in the way that Joe Biden is, who exist anymore. And there's a lot of technique that goes into the way that Joe Biden moves about the world. He's a guy who has theories about how power should be wielded. And um, the artificiality, this understanding, one of the things that I think is so interesting about the guy in the end, is he so messy? He's like one of the most supremely human beings I've ever met. And the the messiness kind of informs the way that he practices politics, that because he wears his ambitions, his insecurities, his humanness on his sleeve, he's able to identify those qualities in foreign leaders or Republican senators that he deals with. And um, that forms the basis for the calculations he makes when he's dealing with them. You give some practical examples of that in the book. You know, sort of recount a few of those now. I mean, when you see that in a politician, you know, I always thought of him as a bit of a cornball and a bit of a phony, primarily because of those stories that are supposed to be folksy and they end up, look, so this might be straddling the line of just being untrue yeah, and maybe right. just being a lie. And, you know, politicians lie. But, you know, he seemed to do it in a way 
It was rather different from everybody else, but it was usually an anecdote. It wasn't about numbers. It was, I was here, I was there. This was something about my past. But if that is a positive attribute to a politician, how does that manifest itself in reality? Right. One example is the way in which he's dealt with Vladimir Putin over time. And so Putin calls him the second day that he's in office and there's a debate. Do you take the call? Do you not take the call? Putin's done a lot to interfere in our elections. Let's just make him wait in line was the attitude of his advisors. And Biden's attitude was we've erred in the past with Russia by treating it as a second rate nation and that Putin is likely to do me damage. And the best I can do in terms of containing him is to exhibit some outward signs of respect to him. And so he calls him back in that conversation. Um, At the same time, he believes in telegraphing whatever the consequences will be for whatever bad acts Putin engages in. And so the next time they meet is in Geneva. And that's very intentional setting because he's decided rather than meeting with him on the fringes of a summit, I need to respect him as big man on campus. And so I'm going to create this setting that's going to have the trappings of Rejevic or some other meeting with the Soviet leaders because that yeah. might that might work with him. And so obviously that fails in the end. But oh, the other thing that was interesting about that was he told his advisors, look, I can't leak anything about this in advance because Putin will feel like he's walking into an ambush. And afterwards, somebody on his staff told me that he's just very aware of the insecurities that foreign leaders have because he has these insecurities themselves. And he doesn't want to make somebody feel slighted if that's going to somehow disadvantage him. I mean, you pointed out it did fail, ultimately. I mean, Reykjavik, uh, Reagan actually alarmed his staffers by saying, let's give up all nukes. And his staffers were like, what is, what is he talking about? We didn't talk about this beforehand. But Reykjavik was a success in a lot yes. of ways. I mean, yeah. it, it, it pushed us towards, um, you know, the glasnost perestroika era. Obviously, the interactions with Putin have been far less successful. And, you know, you see this even back in the Obama times. And, and obviously, this was part of his portfolio. Part of his remit was Ukraine, et cetera. The reset button. Um, People on the Trump side of the aisle say this never would have happened, this being the invasion of Ukraine, on Donald Trump's watch. But it did happen on Joe Biden's watch. This will be an argument that's obviously going to be made during the campaign. And you write pretty extensively about his interactions with Zelensky and and Ukraine. What do you think went wrong there um, from Biden's? And do you think, and this is speculation, but do you think it would have been different under a different president? Um, I think he was on an adversarial course with Joe Biden, which was different than the course that he was on with Donald Trump. And I think maybe ironically having somebody who spoke more strongly about him was triggering in some way to his insecurities. And you look at the way that Putin talked about his invasion. I mean, there, there are all of these grand historical reasons why he launched it that have nothing to do with who is in power at any given moment, that during the pandemic, he sat alone in the Black Sea reading Russian history and bemoaning the fact that he hadn't done anything to reconstitute the Russian empire. I think the perception that he had that Zelensky was incredibly weak fueled a lot of his thinking. And then also he saw Europe was in incredible transition, that Angela Merkel was no longer 
the chancellor in Germany. So there was an opportunity there. He saw that Macron was weak. And explicitly, that's how he he thought about it all. One thing that is interesting about the way that he thinks about Biden is that he was clearly closely attuned to Biden's physique and health. And he believed that Biden was somebody who was probably in decline at the outset. And then after his first meeting, when he walked into Geneva, his first remark was, wow, you <laughs> you look so much better than I thought you did. And then afterwards, um, uh, he, he apparently- What a nice called, opening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit in the way that he described it. And he called Angela Merkel afterwards, and he told her, hey, Biden looked more fit than I thought he would. You mentioned Ukraine as one of Biden's policy successes. I mean, there's a lot of debate about this now with a new round of funding for the the Ukrainian military coming up. Zelensky's visiting Washington next week. Yeah. You have a, a scene at the beginning of that chapter about Ukraine in which Zelensky comes in and treats Biden in a way that you find slightly disrespectful. Is that a, is that a fair way of uh, describing it? Yeah, I think that um, Zelensky was suffering a lot of trauma from the kind of his various interactions with Donald Trump and was a bit unsure about how to deal with an American head of state. My personal theory is that there's also some almost subconscious projection of blame onto Biden for the Hunter Biden stuff, which was so complicating for Zelensky. But Zelensky also had watched the U.S. end sanctions on Nord Stream 2, which made him feel personally insecure about his standing with the Biden administration. So he walks into this meeting with Biden, I think, feeling very insecure and nervous. And in my view, based on the various tellings of that meeting that I was able to absorb, he interacted with Biden in a way in which he was the one wearing his insecurities on his sleeve. He was kind of so desperate to ask for NATO membership, understandably so, justifiably Mm -hmm. so. And Biden's reaction was like, that's just not going to happen right now. And I think he felt very put off by that and then started making arguments to Biden about how NATO was ultimately going to prove irrelevant because the French and Germans were losing interest in it. And for Biden, the whole thing felt nonlinear. It felt like he was getting this argument that was so emotional. And one of the things that's so fascinating about Scranton Joe is that he has this moral code about the way that the United States should interact with various countries. And going back to Afghanistan, you see this in other places. When the United States makes sacrifices on behalf of another country and displays solidarity and sends arms and aids and puts its troops in peril, he expects the the client state <laughs> to behave in a way that reciprocates the beneficence with gratitude. And I think one source of tension in his relationship with Zelensky over time was that he didn't feel the gratitude. And that sounds kind of appalling on one level, right? Because Ukraine is fighting this existential struggle for its survival. I mean, who cares if Joe Biden feels any sense of gratitude for what uh, the arms that he's sending to Ukraine? But I think Biden's point, which is a little bit deeper than the one that I just made, just uh, is that publics in the West are actually sacrificing on behalf of the Ukrainian cause, whether in the form of higher gas prices or just an enormous amount of money that's being sent out the door, and that politicians like himself need to feel like 
they're at least seeing his gratitude that they're getting some credit for that work that they're doing. And in the long run, that type of credit will help them make the case for Ukraine. Now, I could I could counter that <laughs> uh, and say that it's actually Zelensky's ability to apply public pressure on Western leaders to speak over their heads to Western publics, which has been the basis for the popular support that we've had in the war. And in the end, I would say that they're both probably right in their analyses. And this relates to the way that Joe Biden, in some ways, interacts with the American left, is that he's a politician. He's somebody who um, may resent being pushed, but uh, exists to be pushed to go into a different direction. He needs to form these sorts of symbiotic relationships with somebody like Zelensky or somebody like Bernie Sanders because they create the political space for him to do the thing that he ultimately wants to do. Let's talk about that. I mean, you said in Biden's interactions with the political left, you have a chapter in the book called Go Left, Young Man. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, that's correct. So it was during a debate where Joe Biden says, you know, I am the Democratic Party now. And he's telegraphing the fact that he's a centrist. The yeah. people that he was running against were kind of listing to the left, but that was not going to be the person running for president. And then he did go quite far to the left, might to the surprise of a lot of people, including myself, what do you make of his lurch to the left and maybe his kind of return to the center uh, around time he's going to run for the presidency again? Right. So there's the element of personal ambition and underestimation that is one of the great themes in Joe Biden's biography. Um, anybody who read Richard Ben Kramer's amazing book about the people who ran for president in 1988 know that Biden is somebody who has a chip on his shoulder and really is driven by the sense that elites never give him his full due and that therefore he needs to constantly prove that the elite is wrong for underestimating him. And so it's sort of Nixonian, isn't it? It's a little bit Nixonian that everybody thinks that this guy is going to be a placeholder president. He's just going to be a return to normal. And in his mind, he didn't wait around his whole life to be that placeholder. He wanted to join the pantheon of great Democratic presidents. So there's that element. And then I think the other thing is that he was acutely aware of the fact that he's presiding over a governing coalition where the left just happens to be a significant part of it. So there was an element of of realism there as well, that um, after the primaries, he holds the series of meetings or his staff hold the series of meetings with people from the Sanders and Warren campaigns, and they come up with this synthetic platform. And one of the things that was interesting to me during the presidential campaign in 2020 is nobody actually paid attention to what he was saying his policy would be when he was president. It's not like the Build Back Better bill was anything other than a manifestation of his campaign promises. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing because I don't understand exactly what Joe Biden believes at this point. Um, you go back to Joe Biden in the 1990s, even the 1980s. I mean, he's instrumental in making sure that Robert Bork doesn't sit in the Supreme Court and Anthony Kennedy does. I mean, it's pretty significant. Mm -hmm. But in the 90s, I mean, he's very much a centrist Clinton Democrat. And that seemed to be the idea 
in 2020, that this is a return to the center, not a swing from the far right to the far left. Yeah. And then he does go left. But do you have a sense of what he truly believes in what is just kind of, you know, political posturing and political deal-making? Right. So at core, Joe Biden is a nostalgist. Joe Biden is somebody who suffered a lot in the past, yet is constantly yearning to return to some sort of Eden that exists back then. And that Eden is is more or less the 1950s. And it's when you had companies like DuPont from his home state of Delaware, which operated in this fundamentally corporatist sort of way to use the political science jargon, yeah. where you have a big company that's rooted in a community that has a sense of connection to the community that is in partnership with its unions and its workers and everybody is pulling for the common good and America is making tactile, tangible things. That's what he yearns to return to. And I think the reason that he connected with the parts of the Sanders-Warren left at a certain point is because they were pointing in a direction that he could get behind. Oh, let's manufacture Batteries. Batteries are things that we can make in the United States, and we could have corporations that are um, don't have an allegiance to global supply chains and to that they can be rooted in communities. The other thing that I I didn't really get into the book that I find so um, I wish I'd gotten into the book is Joe Biden's best friend. It was his former chief of staff, a guy named uh, Ted Kaufman, who had actually been an engineer at Dupont in the 1960s, and then meets Joe Biden, kind of falls in love with Joe Biden and is by his side for decades. And and this pair would drive back and forth to Washington every day because Biden had made a promise to his sons in the 1970s and 80s that he would never be outside of a phone call range for them. And they, they drove in this big car that had a ginormous mobile phone in the trunk, and they would spend all day talking. Eventually, Kaufman gets appointed to fill Biden's spot in the Senate in 2008, and he's just radicalized by the financial crisis and the way that the banks were treated. Nobody, nobody got rung up for their role in the collapse. And then Bo Biden, his beloved son, the son that he loves more than anything and he sees as the heir to the Biden dynasty, it gets really pissed off about the deal that Eric Holder and the Obama Justice Department create. Uh, with the banks as it related to the housing crisis. And so the two people Biden loves most, Ted Kaufman and Bo Biden, are just like hyping him up about the evils of Wall Street and finance. And that's not really who Joe Biden is. He's not somebody who's very adversarial or populist in his bone, but he had these populists whispering in his ear during that period. I mean, how important is populism to Joe Biden's presidency now? I think it's pretty important because he's not done a very good job of laying out a campaign for 2024. And if he was to lay out a campaign for 2024 that I'm a terrible political consultant (laughs) and prognosticator, but if I were doing it, I would say, look, Trump promised all of these populist things. He promised that he would restore American manufacturing, that he would continue to get tough on China, that he would... He would invest in infrastructure. He would be a friend of the American worker. And Trump is the Park Avenue guy who never delivered on any of that. And I'm the one who has. And that that seems to me like a pretty classical campaign message. Yeah, I mean, you say in the book, you have a, a Biden 
advisor, and I don't remember which one it was, who said, you know, maybe Trump was a bit right on China in your chapter on Xi Jinping. I mean, there it seems to like be a lot of overlap when it comes to certain populist messages. I mean, even when it comes to, you know, Trump and, say, Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders used to be very critical of immigration and, you know, critical of trade. There seems to be this kind of, you know, drift away on both parties from free markets and things yes. like that towards a more populist... I mean, Trump was the one that really did that, didn't he? Yeah, so there's... I You may quibble with this metaphor, but... Before Ronald Reagan, there was Jimmy Carter, and Jimmy Carter was the guy who deregulated chunks of the economy, argued that Washington was broken. I think that Trump, in a certain way, stands as the Jimmy Carter of this new political order because of his personality, because of his political instincts. He saw that we were exiting the era of globalism and of neoliberalism and all whatever jargony term you want to use, and that... Biden, who is able to govern in a much more coherent sort of way, takes a lot of the stuff that Trump began and is able to operationalize it and extend it and take it and and turn it into something, whether it's foreign policy, into a grand strategy in the Indo-Pacific, or whether it's an economic policy into an industrial policy. I mean, industrial policy is a phrase you you didn't hear for a long time. That's kind of a... No, no. (laughs) Revisiting an old phrase. And and also, I mean, I think one thing, the chapter that you cited, Go Left, Young Man, is about these establishment-type figures like Jake Sullivan and Brian Deese. Jake Sullivan is the National Security Advisor. Brian Deese was the head of the National Economic Council. And they underwent their own ideological evolution. Yeah, he sounds like a Sandinista at the end of that chapter. <laughs> I couldn't believe Jake Sullivan had had lurched that far to the left. Yeah, and, um, and he's kind of been the architect of a lot of uh, Bidenomics, for lack of a better term. And I should say, like, I've had my own evolution on this. Like, what I was writing there was a little bit autobiographical because I had been somebody who I think in the 90s and in the 2000s had basically believed in the consensus about free trade, you know, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And even I think to a certain extent in the aftermath of Trump, I found myself reconsidering certain economic positions that I'd had. And so I write about them in a way that is probably too sympathetic for your taste, but reflects, I think, my own empathy. The era of big government is over has now become that the era of big government is back and embraced by both parties. Uh, Somewhat, although it's really striking. I think that Joe Manchin may have done Biden a certain favor. So Build Back Better on the eve of Afghanistan was going to be a $3.5 trillion bill that would have extended the social safety net in fairly significant sorts of ways. There would have been a measure of real redistribution in the Biden agenda. And that would have been the thing that probably would have elevated him into that pantheon of Democratic presidents that he aspired Mm -hmm. to join. But Manchin never really believed in it and kept delaying and delaying Afghanistan and the collapse of the president's approval ratings meant that that was no longer possible. And then you get to what emerges, which is essentially a green energy policy that's all carrots, no sticks, and all the redistributionist parts of the Biden agenda have been called. In a way, I think he does Biden a political favor by letting him emerge with the most capacious, least 
tendentious, least controversial version of Bidenomics. Uh, yeah, and let's talk about Bidenomics for a second. I mean, not the political phrase, and I don't really think it's taking off very much. Which is really banal, right? Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. like, it's not a great one. I'm not, yeah. people are rallying to Bidenomics. But the economy is not great. Uh, most people polled, vast majority of people polled in both parties think it's in a rough patch. Gas prices are rising. Inflation is eased, but seems to be ticking up again. And, you know, if you listen to people like uh, somebody mentioned in your book, a Democratic Party grandee uh, like Larry Summers, they say, you know, this is the problem with the spending. The spending has created this issue that was probably necessary in some way or another during the pandemic. But after the pandemic, the spending continued, and this is creating out-of-control inflation. I mean, what do people around Joe Biden think about this messaging? Because it's going to be a very difficult one for him to deal with in the next campaign. So I think that the summer's critique has a lot of truth in it. Can I just tweak it a little bit? Which sure, was that. You had this wave of pandemic spending, a lot of which happened in the Trump era. And then you have this extra bit of it that happens with the American Rescue Plan that ends up accelerating pre-existing inflationary trends. But his big objection to the American Rescue Plan and that, that inflationary spending was that it would actually make it impossible to spend money in other programs that would have sure. long-lasting impacts on the American economy. And I think that that Yeah, he critique, wasn't he wasn't he certainly wasn't being Milton Friedman about it. But yeah, he yeah. Was saying and that, I think yeah. that the political critique I think is actually the one that is going to be more haunting to the Biden people than the economic critique because mm-hmm. inflation was going to be a problem for them regardless of the rescue plan, but any inflation beyond a certain level is economic pain to people. And you know, inflation has come down faster in the United States than it has in other countries around the world. That doesn't matter. It's still politically. biting, though. Isn't it, it? it doesn't matter politically or or practically, right? Is what mm. you're what you're saying, and I yeah. I agree with that. And it's a very, very, very hard thing for them to overcome at the end of the day because whatever you do for the long run with your political program doesn't matter if somebody's experiencing all of this pain in the short term and. I think that their best hope, and there's no political argument that they can make to refute that. And, and in fact, I think they've been reluctant to make a political case for their own accomplishments because they're, they've been afraid that people will never listen to them because of the inflation, inflationary pain. After the break, more with Frank Four. Stay with us. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you hear criticisms from, I mean, even from Biden's left, but mostly from Republicans, are there any of those criticisms that you think land? Um, sure. Um, I think that um, in terms of their COVID policy, I think that there are a lot of right-wing critiques that I think are justified. I think that there's a criticism that they could have pushed harder to reopen schools. And I think yeah. that that is true. I think it's maybe more complicated, obviously, than some of his critics portray. But in the end, it was a place where he should have devoted greater political resources, and he didn't. I think that he made a big. But he mis- didn't want to upset Randy Weingarten, the Teachers Union, you know, the, yeah. the very the largest donor to the Biden campaign, right? Right. Well, and and the other thing, the other element of that that I think is important to recall is that the nation was potentially on the brink of labor strife around schools. And maybe you could argue it was worth forcing a confrontation there, but there was real anxiety on behalf of teachers about going into schools. And so he had a strategy for managing that. I would argue he could have been more aggressive in pushing them. Um, I think that the vaccine mandate that he imposed in the end of September of his first term was a mistake that his instinct had been right about vaccines headed into that, that vaccines were a question of persuasion and that coercion was never going to work and that he did something that was legally dubious by imposing a vaccine mandate and ultimately counterproductive and ended up exacerbating a lot of the culture war around the vaccine. I think in terms of foreign policy, um, I think the chapters in Afghanistan in my book were very harrowing to report. And I felt like I was talking to people in the immediate aftermath of the withdrawal who were traumatized themselves by the whole experience. And while I think the idea of withdrawing from Afghanistan was correct, I think that his unwillingness to engage with the humanitarian consequences of that decision and to plan for the humanitarian consequences of his, that decision were a great failing on his part. From the left, I mean, I, it's actually interesting the ways in which the left isn't that critical of him. I mean, I think, oh, the other thing that I would say, just um, uh, criticizing him maybe from the center, is I think the push that he made for voting rights was both nonsensical from a political perspective, that he was never going to be able to get the the maximalist democratic version of a voting rights bill, and also distracted from coming up with a centrist voting rights bill that would have addressed the primary problems that Trump and his subversionist tactics posed to democracy, which struck me as the real threat, not whether somebody could get a bottle of water at the 100 footmark in line. Well, let's talk about the thing that the media doesn't stop talking about and apparently is a very important issue to voters too, um, age. Yeah. 
in your book, I don't want to say you're dismissive of it, but you say that, and you have said that Biden should, you know, look at his age as a strength and something to be presented as experience. And, you know, that he's pretty sharp and he, you know, gets his uh, notes and he, he gives them back to people with scribbled uh, markings on them and all of his notations. And he's pretty engaged in policy argument. That doesn't really come through to the American people, does yeah. it? I've thought so much about age since my book has come out and because yeah. it is something that everybody – it's obviously based on the polling. It's on everybody's mind. And I've had to confront it in a different way than I did when I was reporting the book, because when I was reporting the book, I was chronicling two years of governing. And the political demands based on Biden were very different during those two years than they are now. So I'm just going to go through this in the way that I've started to untangle it in my head. So there's a question about Biden's mental acuity and his governing capacity over the course of the last two years and where he sits at this moment in time. So CNN poll uh, the other day said that 73% of Americans are seriously concerned for Biden's current level of physical and mental competence. Right. So there's- That's three quarters of Americans. That's a a huge number. Right. There's his mental competency. Uh, I think that he's not somebody who's sitting there dancing on the strings of a puppet master right now. If anything, it's the opposite of that, that he's somebody who kind of hurls himself into the details of whatever problem A is, for better or for worse. I mean, I think there's strengths and weaknesses to that style of management, but he has the ability to think through a major problem in a way that I think does reflect experience and the like. So if you were to give him a mental acuity test of the likes that Nikki Haley has suggested a president should take, I would say he would pass it. There's the question of his physical energy levels, which is a totally different question, and but also central to being president of the United States because communication is a huge part of the job. And I'd say that his age has made it harder for him to be an energetic communicator with the American public. And so you it's one of the strange things about his presidency is the way in which he's omnipresent. He gives speeches every day. He talks every day. And yet he seems to be this guy who's at a remove. But um, he's had the fewest press conferences since of, of any president since Reagan. Yeah. And I think the only one less than that was Nixon. And Nixon, we understand why, <laughs> because he was committing an enormous amount of crimes. Yeah. And Reagan also had the issue of, uh, you know, mental infirmity that people suspected had really overtaken him in his second term. I mean, he's out there a lot, but he's not communicating with journalists. He's, he hasn't given a single interview since his presidency to a major American newspaper. Yeah. It's very and, rare. And I think um, with Biden... A lot of that is tangled up in his insecurities and in his notorious uh, eternal problem of gaffing. And that um, is it gaffing or is it lying? Um, well, I think it's so when you say something like Putin should be removed from power, which was the gaff that got him in trouble, in <laughs> that's not lying. That's probably that's a Michael Kinsley gaff. That's a Michael gaff Kinsley it, gaff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's telling the truth. Yeah, I think that his his problem isn't the stories that, you know, that morph over time and that fact checkers mm-hmm. would rightly point out to having problems with them. The problem that he has or that the things, the times that he 
says something that accurately reflects what he's thinking. I mean, the most famous example of this being when he went on Meet the Press and started talking about gay marriage. And he's not somebody who is disciplined with message. And I think that he's he's got a keen sense of that quality in himself. And I think he tries to protect himself from that. That's That's always been my sense of why he's been at such an incredible remove. And also... He was able to get away with it for a very long time as a tactic, right? So for the first however long he's been president, he hasn't taken that much heat for existing at a remove. I think only now is it starting to be visited on him in a way that uh, hurts him with the press. To me, the right question, and it's kind of implicit in your analysis of the second Reagan term, is kind of projecting forward. And and that's that's hard for me to do personally because I people age It'll be different. Six at the end people of the people term. age differently and people. Yeah. Um, but I think that's Which is precisely what Donald Trump said yesterday. By the way, to Megyn Kelly, he said, "I don't think Joe Biden's too old. People age differently. I just think he's bad at his job." <laughs> right. Um, well, I mean, he's. In I mean, he has a reason to say that, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 But to me, that's that's the real question that gets at. If I were to ask a question in good faith about Joe Biden's aging, that seems to me the most poignant version of it. Yeah. About the stories he tells, um, which I find very strange and, and slightly troubling. The other day he said he was at Ground Zero the day after the September 11th attacks. Well, he wasn't. He said that he was a professor, I think, at the University of Pennsylvania teaching political theory for four years. He wasn't. Um, said something similar about his grandfather dying in the hospital uh, the same day. And I can't remember when one of his sons was born, but that also wasn't true. CNN the other day, no enemy of Joe Biden, wrote this uh, list. In 2021 and 22, he falsely claimed to have been arrested during a civil rights protest. He falsely claimed to have, quote, used to drive an 18-wheeler. Falsely claimed to have visited the Pittsburgh synagogue where worshippers were killed in a 2018 mass shooting. Falsely claimed to have visited Iraq and Afghanistan as president. Told a false story involving a late relative and a purple heart. And falsely described his interactions decades ago with late Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir. There are other ones to add to that, too. Um, I mean, he frequently refers to his son, Beau Biden, dying in Iraq, not dying because of burn pits, but dying in Iraq. At what point is that lying and not just kind of a gaffe? Um, it's clearly a tendency that is deeply ingrained in him that this is not um, this is not what you're citing are not stray examples. They're part of a pattern of the way that he describes himself and his role in events in history. And there is something both disturbing about it on some level and I think very reflective of something deep in his psyche that this um, this desire to be in the narrative and to be at the center of the narrative and to have a version of events that kind of meshes with some idealized version of those events. But you're Um, reluctant to call it lying. Yes, because it's, uh, is it lying? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's like on, on, on the surface, yes, it is, it is lying, but there are different reasons why, People lie, and I think that that then needs to somehow be 
wrapped into the way in which we morally judge them. I mean, it's it, he's not his, his, the pattern of lies are really always about himself, right? They're not about other people and they're self-aggrandizing. And so it's this tendency towards self-aggrandizement, which is super connected to the way that he exists as a politician and super connected to all of these insecurities that he has. I mean, that's how I, I think about it. There has been a lot of talk amongst people that you wouldn't expect it to come from, David Ignatius being the most recent one in the yeah. Washington Post, that saying, um, we really appreciate your service. You did a great job of uh, freeing us from Donald Trump, but now it's time to step down. Number one, do you think that's the right analysis? And number two, do you think it's going to happen? I think that there's a lot of pundit wish casting happening on this right now. And for reasons that are probably both genuine, but also horse racy craving for there to be some sort of alternative in the race. Like I said, I'm, I'm really bad at the, the prognostication and the calculation bit of this. I always get it wrong. Um, but as a voter, yeah. and a very informed voter, because you know people in the Biden orbit, do you want him to run again? Well, that's a different question. And, you know, and, I, and, I've, and I've wrestled with it, and I, and I don't quite know my answer to that question. I think that there are certain things, certain attributes that he brings as a candidate. So let me let me let me disaggregate into two parts. There's one. There's the political question: Is he the best candidate for beating Donald Trump? And then there's the second question, which is: Do I think it's a good idea to have an 86 year old president? And on the second question, I would much rather not have an 86 year old president. And I think if there was a viable alternative to that that wasn't Donald Trump, that would be my preference. On the political question, I think it's always more complicated than people assume. It's like what the Democratic Party, if there was no Joe Biden there, has all sorts of fissures and fractures. And I don't know how they would come exploding out into the public view. And and I don't know what the alter is the alternative Kamala Harris is the alternative Gretchen Whitmer. I don't think I anybody could predict that with any great certainty. And whatever you say about Joe Biden, like Joe Biden is somebody who's much closer to, I think, the center of American public opinion. He's got a record to run on that I think he could be proud of and he could explain to people. And again, plan beats no plan. And I mean, the crazy thing is just how consequential this election will be for the future of American democracy. And one thing I just uh, have also seen a lot of in media is the way in which a lot of Bidenism is being treated on a continuum with Donald Trump. And I, I find it very strange. So the age question, like there, as we are discussing, there are totally reasonable, legitimate questions to be asked of age that should be asked about his age. But his mental acuity issues are different in scale and kind than Donald Trump's mental acuity issues. Like Donald Trump, in my view, behaves as a lunatic oftentimes. And that's very- But, he, but, he, but he's an agile lunatic. He's an <laughs> agile lunatic. But that's different than having somebody whose sentences occasionally trail off or you know doesn't like to do things before 10 o'clock in the morning. Like, you know, you need to be able to look at the relative merits of these two discussions, not treat them as two sides of the same coin. 
Or you take something like the Hunter Biden question. Hunter Biden is a total scuzzball who did a lot of things that to me are symptomatic of the way in which kleptocracies try to latch on to these vulnerable political figures. I think Joe Biden did not behave admirably in his dealings with Hunter Biden. He should have been able to tell him, no, don't engage in this business. Don't exploit the Biden name. That's a moral failing of his part. But it's still different than Donald Trump's moral failings. And Hunter Biden's indictment is still different than the things that Donald Trump stands accused of. I think the troubling thing about the way that the campaign has evolved is, from my perspective, is that this is all now totally muddy for voters. You don't mention Hunter in the book. I mean, he gets one passing mention. Uh, yeah. Why did you choose to to not dig into that a little bit? Um, you know, I was writing about the first two years of his presidency, and Hunter was not a significant part of that narrative. And there weren't very many questions that were being posed of the White House as it related to Hunter Biden. And I wish I had more about Hunter Biden as an individual and as a figure. And that was something I got close to getting some interesting stuff on, and then I just couldn't end up nailing down. But um, Oh, how, how badly <laughs> I want you to fill in some of the blanks on that one. Yeah, yeah, good luck. <laughs> but I'll trust you, as a reporter, you want to have multiple sources and everything, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's, you know, I... Um, I find the Hunter Biden question to be so interesting as it relates to to Joe Biden because— How does it relate to Joe Biden? I mean, there's a lot of smoke. There's a lot of kind of political propaganda. There's a lot of people on the right who just see this as an opportunity to launch an impeachment investigation when there's, you know, some curious things there, but nothing I would suspect would— allow somebody to be like, oh, we can impeach him on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, about, what about it, though, seems curious to you and and you would like to know more well, about? Well, substantively, I don't find, I, I, mean, I, I know what I know, which is what everybody knows, and that yeah. doesn't seem to me to add up to anything remotely impeachable at this stage or um, it's just there's some suggestive so things. So where was his failing? Are, where was his moral failing, Joe Biden's I think it failing. was that um, Hunter Biden was clearly – running a business that was exploiting the Biden family name and was dealing with certain figures that were in areas of the world that were adjacent to what Biden was working on. And he should have said- oh, Not even know, adjacent, but at the exact area. I mean, the exact area. Sure, yeah. And he should, he should be able to say, don't, you know, I understand you've got to make a living, but, you know, this is too important for you to be working here. It's not to me, that's not that hard of a conversation to have. And where the Biden story gets interesting is all the ways in which that does then become a complicated story for them to a conversation to have because there's so many layers of guilt that are built onto this. I mean, I I think of this as a family story as much as a political story, although it is clearly a political story and the way in which it's so hard for Hunter for Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, for them both to know that Hunter Biden was never the son that he loved most. <laughs> <laughs> and that it was, Bo, yeah. you know, Bo was going to be the one who was going to carry the torch for the family dynasty. Hunter was always kind of the hatchet man in that operation. And... Um, the things that you said you were reporting out but didn't get solid enough to put in the book... Um, was all related to the emotional parts of it and just, okay. uh, yeah, not, not, not substantive. Okay. So it wasn't anything that worried you if it had turned out to be true. No, 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 okay. no, no. I just, yeah. 
I was just interested in, um, I'm interested in the way that he processes his son. Let's talk a little bit about how you became quite popular in conservative media, uh, much to my surprise, and I'm sure to your surprise, when it came to some of the reporting on Kamala Harris. Talk a little bit about how your kind of reporting became something that was injected into the conservative media sphere and people were celebrating this and saying, see, we told you so. I mean, your book seems to be slightly tough on her in in some parts and not on others. What do you make of Kamala Harris's vice presidency? Yeah, well, so um, I really would like to thank Fox News and the New York Post. Um, and now there's this uh, comedy where there are a lot of people who bought my book under false pretenses and now are giving it one-star reviews on Amazon, which I will take happily in exchange for the sale. And there is something really... Um, th- th- there's part that I understand about the way in which right-wing media operates and like and you know goes and cherry-picks stuff from a book. That's totally like appropriate and and like in its way honorable. But then there's other ways in which I've seen how Jesse Waters on Fox News just makes things up. I mean, in there was a story in the book about how Biden was looking at a map of Kabul during the evacuation and was looking at a parking lot and said, oh, this is a place where refugees could gather. And then suddenly in the Fox News version of it, it became Joe Biden actually wanted to build a parking lot in Kabul and his aides were laughing their asses off at him because he's so mentally deranged. And so there's that. Okay, Kamala Harris. Um, What's the real question about Kamala Harris? Because every vice president uh, suffers from some version of what she suffered from which is they struggle to figure out what their role is in the White House. They have this relationship with the the president where they end up on some level resenting the president for for constraining them. And it's kind of a ha- hapless... But she, she seems to want to be constrained in some sense. In your yes. book, you say, you know, that she didn't want to talk about race or gender, despite the fact that informed a lot of her hiring decisions and a lot of her thought processes, and said, you know what, can you put me as the liaison and the emissary to Scandinavia? I know. It's it's comical. It's, um, I think Peggy, <laughs> Peggy Noonan uh, in the Wall Street Journal compared that to uh, Connor Roy in succession, like <laughs> wanting his piece of the... And I, I think it's it's... It just doesn't make any sense. Like if you're Kamala Harris, your identity is your identity and your ability to talk to certain parts of the Democratic Party that Joe Biden is incapable of connecting with, your your job description essentially writes itself, yet she resisted for a long time playing that sort of role. And, and you know, I was told at the onset of the administration, she was much more interested in trying to find a way to talk to the white working class voter and that, that she'd spent a lot of energy trying to direct her. And, and in a way, like, of course, that's, she should, right? You, you you should be vice president of all America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But politically, her role felt like it was kind of screamingly obvious. And yet she just didn't want that role. Particularly as it pertained to the border. Well, the border, to be fair to her, her assignment was dealing with the root causes of migration and dealing with Central America. It was a role that Joe Biden had had assigned to him by Barack Obama. And maybe there was something almost sadistic about giving that role to Kamala Harris, given all of the politics of it all. But I think that the way that 
Joe Biden thought about it and the way that Kamala Harris thought about it initially was that this was a foreign policy assignment where it's actually possible to get something done. You're going down, you're dealing with very corrupt governments in the, that part of the world, um, yet like the prestige of the American vice presidency is sufficient to be able to conduct negotiations with these governments. And then, of course, you know, you have that role. Yes, it's going to people are going to automatically connect it to the border. And yet there's something so defensive and so ham fisted about the way in which she denied having any responsibility for the border and, and seemed to be directing responsibility for it in other directions. So I would say that the real issue with Kamala Harris at core is just her inability to navigate the politics of the job. That's been the, the place that she's really, to me, she struggles the most. And you you get these sentences that she she has, like yeah. in the, the interview with Lester Holt, where she says, I've been to the border, or, I've been to the border, we're going to the border. I, I can't remember the exact yeah. phrasing, but she's like talking well, herself. Well, he says, you have not been to the border. Yeah. He actually interjects and says right. that, yeah. And she talks. And she says, herself, "I also haven't been to Europe," which was right. a very strange response. It is. She talks herself into a cul-de-sac, and there's something about the way that she communicates that's not just artificial. It's just overthought. It's overcooked, and it seems like she. You can hear her unfolding sentences in a way in which she's trying to avoid making the mistake, and of course, then. If you try to talk in that sort of way, you end up just littering your sentences with mistakes. Yeah. I, on the border, Donald Trump took rightfully a lot of heat for saying that we're going to build a wall. He didn't build a wall. Mexico is going to pay for it. Mexico didn't pay for the wall that he didn't build, et cetera. The border seems to be an issue that is looming pretty large in voters' minds at this moment. How do you rate Joe Biden's performance on immigration and on the border. I mean, he kept, of course, some of Donald Trump's policies for, for a little bit, the Remain in Mexico policy. How is he doing now? Because it seems to be something that voters are are pretty annoyed about. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think I, he would get a lot of heat from the left because if you looked at his border policy in aggregate, it's reasonably hawkish in the ways in yeah. which they've dealt with asylum policy um, is reasonably hawkish. There are all sorts of systemic reasons for why there was pent-up demand to cross the border. And even stringent enforcement at this stage is not enough to stop the levels of migration that we're seeing. And yeah. um, Biden is actually somebody who is th – that hawkishness reflects a political sensibility that he has. He understands that this is a big problem for himself. It's it's a topic he does not relish dealing with in public or in, because he understands that there are limits to what policy can accomplish and also that it's going to put him crossways with his own base and people in the middle of the country who care about the issue. 
Yeah, I mean, that's if you're trying to attract working class voters and becoming a populist, one of those tricky issues is, of course, immigration and the border. And yeah, I mean, most voters don't care about root causes. <laughs> they yeah. don't care. Yeah. They, want, they, they say there's people here. And, you know, I went to Star County, the most Hispanic county in America, which, you know, is, it's not a big county. It's probably 20,000 voters there. And they swung pretty hard towards Donald Trump. I mean, I think it is 99% uh, Hispanic. And I talked to people there that said, you know, just nobody cares. It's not a, an issue of being Hispanic, but there's just people in my backyard and I don't like it. And yeah. something has to be done about this. And it seems to be something that neither party is, has been particularly good at uh, getting their, their hands around. I want to ask you one thing about reporting. Yeah. You know, it's not a book with footnotes yeah. in the sense that, you know, you would see in a, a history book. M- mostly anonymous sources, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of these people, I'd imagine have a pretty positive view of Joe Biden. Um, They work for him. They want him to succeed. Did you worry that that was going to color your impression of Joe Biden? Because most of the people that you're talking to are, you know, employees of Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, I wrestled with this pretty hard throughout. I came to the book. This is the first book I've done of this kind, which is a form of access journalism, where if you don't manage to get access to the people who are in the room, then you're going to have nothing at the end of the day. And I've read every Bob Woodward book and I, you know, I have, I've written a negative review of Bob Woodward books and, 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 um, been critical of different parts of this genre. I mean, there's, there's a lot about it that I don't like, and there's a lot about it that I came to respect more (laughs) after having engaged in this sort of project. And, what you're describing is kind of the inherent problem, which is you have to make this bargain essentially with the people who are the only people available to pull off a book like this, which is that you're not going to attribute things to them. Everything is going to be kind of murky. And yet, like, it's kind of sometimes obvious where information comes from. And there's a real trade-off there in terms of transparency and just being able to capture something that is journalistically and historically useful. And what you're describing is also true, that there is like when you sit with one group of people and like you're getting their version, you're getting their version of events, of course, that's going to influence the way that you process things. That's very human. And you do your best to navigate through it by applying skepticism and like insisting on moments where you you ask yourself the type of question that you asked me earlier. What are the ways in which you would be, which are the criticisms do you consider to be legitimate? And the other thing I should say is, and, and it's probably obvious from the contours of this conversation, I bring to the subject my own ideological and policy sure. commitments. And I think one of the reasons why I was able to get ultimately the access that I had was the way that I wrote about the campaign where I actually was taking seriously some of the policy proposals that they were writing. And I was calling attention to them in articles that I wrote for the Atlantic and was saying, you know what, like he's probably going to govern in a different sort of way than, and so that buys you kind of credibility with the people on the inside who see like, Oh, you're somebody who's showing curiosity in what we're actually saying and you're taking us seriously when the rest of the world isn't. So that that's all there. But I think that um, 
I don't know if I would do another book like this in the future. I enjoyed the challenge of it. I enjoyed the challenge of having to try to impose narrative on the chaos of events. And you make choices about what's important and what's unimportant. And some of those choices you get right. And some of those choices you get wrong. And some of the historical judgments that you make about what you've witnessed are going to prove out. And others are not because that's the nature of writing something where you end um, in the middle of the story. Yeah, I don't envy you. I mean, Washington is obviously a pit of vipers, and you have to adjudicate why people are telling you things and what their motivations are and, you know, how that affects their recall of certain things. I mean, obviously, Kamala Harris and Kamala Harris's office has said that uh, there are people inside the administration that have been trying to make us look bad and leaking stories, et cetera. So, I mean, this is obviously just the way politics works. You didn't get an interview with Joe Biden. Yeah. I did see him twice in private settings with other reporters who got invited in to meet with him. And so that, of course, colors the way that I I think about him because I was able, especially on these questions about mental acuity, for me, it was, those were the moments where I felt like I had the biggest gut check about that, where I could sit and listen to him tell stories. Had you not had, you not had that would you have worried about it more that they're not giving you access to Joe Biden because they're worried about how Joe Biden will be in front of somebody writing a book about him? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I, well, so there, there's a couple other wrinkles to this. One is I learned that he, as somebody who's been around the block so many times, he has theories of the world and the way that the world operates and theories about media, especially, that are very strong. And he really doesn't care for books written about presidencies. And so he, um, I mean, I don't totally understand them, but I think that maybe at some day he, he wants to write his own memoir and there's like a sense of competition he has with other books that exist, however absurd that line of thinking may be. But I mean, I don't understand why he doesn't talk more. Like wh whatever gaffes he might make or whatever <laughs> exaggerations he might display it's worth it's worth exposing the public to that because there's a lot there that that the public should see like i I've, I've seen him tell stories where you're like oh man like enough about Jesse Helms's funeral already <laughs> but, uh, but then I've also seen him talk about American strategy in the Indo-Pacific and it's actually a very sophisticated way of looking at the world. And you can see he's got these chess pieces in his head. And, you know, I think that those two parts of Joe Biden probably have always coexisted, that there is, there's the bloviation, there's the storytelling that can sometimes be dodgy. And then there's this other part of him that is got this streetwise sophistication about the world. And to me, the appealing thing about him is a, a literary character. And the thing that ultimately became more appealing to me about him, about, about him as a political figure is the messiness, is the humanness. And if you don't expose people to that, then they're missing some of the, the stuff that, that would turn them off. But they're also missing the stuff that might actually lead them to admire him more or to understand how he's running the country. 
I mean, when you spoke to his advisors and you spoke to many of them, did anyone telegraph that to you or tell you directly that, you know, we try to keep him away from media and press conferences because we don't suspect that anything will be gained from it? No, the way that they would describe it and take this for what it is, like this doesn't necessarily (laughs) feel authentic, but it's that Joe Biden has this abiding insecurity about not knowing what he's talking about. And it all goes back to the Neil Kinnock story in the sense that he was getting fed somebody else's life story and that there's something plastic about him. And that when he prepares... And to be clear for those who don't know, that's the plagiarism allegations in 1988, that he took a a bit of Neil Kinnock, the labor politician's life story, right? Yeah. That's a seminal moment in the official Joe Biden biography when he went from being a show horse in the parlance of Washington to being a workhorse. And that, and, and I think this is, this is actually authentically true, that there was a moment in his life where he got publicly shamed and that he just decided that he was going to prove everybody wrong by digging in. And so he became a homework guy. And when he prepares now, there's like a messiness to that as well. So he'll start asking questions in order to achieve mastery where he'll say, all right, you know, you're, you're giving me this thing about child poverty. I don't totally understand it. Like, can you bring in the person to help me master this? And that person comes in and then there's something there that he's like, he asks the question, like, I don't totally, I need to understand this. Can you bring the next person in to help me master this? And then it becomes a pile up where his schedule is completely wrecked because he spent all of this time preparing for a press conference. And it's actually, it's it's interesting that Kamala Harris, for very different reasons, has much the same tendency. I mean, you could argue there's probably something about the overachieving meritocratic ethos of the Democratic Party where like appearing stupid about policy is the most grievous sin. And there's this tremendous overcompensation for that if that makes sense. It does. And I know we're right up against the clock here. I'm just going to ask you one quick final question. Hunter's been indicted. There's this impeachment stuff. Zelensky's coming back to town. A lot is happening. A lot has happened in the past six months. What has happened since you turned in the draft of the book that you just wish you could have included? I mean, I think the Hunter stuff to me is just, as somebody who's interested in character, I think that that is something I wish I'd had in the book. I think the McCarthy debt ceiling negotiations is a great story and illustrates in a way the idea that he is this last politician, that McCarthy was somebody that he was able to size up, I think, pretty quickly and identify his weaknesses and then had this strategy of dealing with them where he let McCarthy seem like he was dominating in public while he was beating him on substance in private. And also, I think that the Ukraine story is a story that just keeps turning. And it's so hard. One of the values of a book, if I can if I can be self-aggrandizing in the Joe Biden style, is that it helps look at the bigger sweep of the narrative. And I mean, to me, Ukraine is, is a story of our times and at the center of Joe Biden's foreign policy and its its survival is a miraculous story and how we end up extricating ourselves from this war. If we end up extricating ourselves from the war is the end point. It's the terminus of this story in a way that I wish I was still chronicling now. Franklin Foer, 
author of The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for an excellent interview. Thanks for listening. If you liked this conversation, if there were parts that challenged you, angered you, or maybe something was said that made you change your mind, that's all great. They're really gonna make me vote for Joe Biden. Share with your friends and family and use it to provoke conversations of your own. And if you want to support honestly, you can do that at thefp.com and become a subscriber. I'm Michael Moynihan. You can usually find me at the Fifth Column Podcast. Thanks for listening. How is the best case scenario, Joe Biden? Until next time. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.